This is a Retail Insider Podcast. You're listening to The Weekly. Welcome to this week's episode of The Weekly by Retail Insider. This is Lee Rippett, and I'm joined with the Editor-in-Chief Craig Patterson to discuss this week's most read articles from retail-insider.com. We're currently recording on November the 6th, 2019, and we just wanted to quickly mention one of our advertisers, Prisma Construction, as they're going to be supporting this week's podcast, and we'll have a brief message from them later on during the show. So thanks for joining me, Craig. Hello, everyone. Excellent. Well, the first article that we wanted to bring up, which was the most read article, was to do with a massive tower proposal that was announced for the Blur Street area in Toronto, specifically next to and aerially above the Harry Rosen flagship. So isn't that in your neighborhood, Craig? Yeah, yeah. I can't wait for the noise. No. (laughs) (laughs) I'm now surprised because I know that the Blur Street flagship for Harry Rosen was just unveiled back in the fall of 2008. So that's like recent. But no, and it looks like that this proposal is for the lot next door that literally will go up and then cantilever over the aerial space above the flagship. So, which is crazy to me. So, and hasn't Harry Rosen in that flagship had some recent renovations as well? Yeah, yeah. I mean, they did a major renovation inside. So, uh, you know, we talked about the Canada Goose Shop. They opened in there. Uh, they've got a beautiful second level with boutiques, you know, Laurel Piana, Zania, Tom Ford, Montclair. Beautiful uh, store. It's probably, I mean, I think Harry Rosen's the best menswear store in terms of having multiple locations and being high end in the world. Yeah. And uh, my main thing with this article is that I've seen buildings built on top of other buildings, but I haven't seen a building going up next to the other one and then literally shooting over top of the other one next door, which would be the Harry Rosen Blur Street flagship. So I was stunned with this. So I was just wondering since you wrote the article. Where is it in the approval process with the city? Is it a done deal or just a thought? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just a proposal right now. So, I mean, the city of Toronto, and sorry, I'm going to bash them a little bit. I mean, they're going to probably make this tower be shorter. No, really? And then they're probably going to make it have balconies, and they're probably going to ruin the design. But oh. nevertheless... Well, that's heartbreaking. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, that's why Toronto has, you know, some in some cases, you know, substandard architecture. Oh. And uh, yes, I am calling out the city of Toronto. I mean... Uh, you know, amazing, pro- you know, proposals like the YSL condominiums on Young Street. I mean, they had to redesign that because the city was against 98 floors because for some reason the city of Toronto has a fear of heights. So, uh, <laughs> you know, it was in Chicago. They say, well, why can't you build this a little bit bigger and more interesting? So uh, oh. <laughs> anyways, but uh, the, the thing is, yeah, so uh, the Harry Rosen store on Bloor Street, it's about, I think it's four levels above ground and one below. Okay. Um, the proposal has it that this tower is going to basically cantilever over the store and is going to rise much 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 higher than the current store oh, which stunning. i think is fascinating so i didn't yeah. actually put this in the article but my understanding is that um you know the harry rosen corporation or rose jack investments whichever actually owns the buildings so oh. i'm sure they got a spectacular payout of millions of dollars to sell these air rights because oh. wow. uh, years ago i was talking to the bia and they were saying that they could there or there could have been a situation where the entire block was redeveloped from the uh, former david's footwear at the corner of bloor and bay all the way to Bel Air Street along Bloor. So they're looking at actually demolishing three buildings and rebuilding them. So wow. this latest proposal is just the two buildings. That's 80 Bloor Street West yeah, as well yeah. as the Harry Rosen building, 82 Bloor Street West. And it, you take a look at the renderings on our website and it looks stunning. And they have did a great job of capturing what the neighborhood will look like as well as like throwing in like what some of the potential um, retailers without actually, because you can't confirm any of them, but they had like Fior on there and stuff like that. But, but the whole luxury feel was there the building itself architecturally looked like it was 
curving in the right spots and splitting where it cantilevered. It was just a sexy looking building at the end of the day. Oh, I know. I mean, often what happens with towers, and I mean, this isn't so much a retail discussion, but uh, the city cuts it down. The developer is going to make less money. They have to do something called value engineering, mm. which means you find a way to cut costs so that it's oh. cheaper. And really? uh, oh. like, I hope it looks something like it does. I mean, it's got gold uh, in terms yeah, of, yeah. you know, kind of the design. And, you know, Van- Toronto is known and Vancouver for blue and green glass. Yeah, so, yeah. Uh, you know, this will be a beautiful looking tower with over 1,400 residential units. Mm. I mean, I can't mm-hmm. imagine how busy that residential lobby is going to be. I mean, oh, yeah. So you get I don't know if it's any buildings in Canada, like single buildings that have that many units, oh. honestly. And I kind of follow this sort of things. So, mm-hmm. uh, and very small apartment, you know, condominium apartments, I should say. Uh, I looked at the floor plans and the, uh, you know, we've mm-hmm. got them online. If you want to have a look at anybody, uh, go to the article and we have a PDF that I link to and you can actually have a look at how this thing is going to be designed, at least as it is currently proposed and mm-hmm. probably will have to change. Well, fair enough. And when I take a look at the Vancouver market, whenever there's a new tower going up in the Coal Harbor neighborhood or the Yale Town neighborhood, a lot of times, like especially these luxury addresses, they take the entire floor and then divide it into just four or six condos. So I'm surprised, especially considering the address for this building and this, the glamour of it, that they are slicing it up into pieces. Well, that and also it's easier to sell small units because I know uh, developers in the city have tried to uh, build buildings or at least just propose them with larger units. And it's been quite difficult to sell them out. Whereas if you have a bunch of little 500 square foot apartments that, you know, many investors and, you know, first-time buyers will purchase uh, you can sell a building out within days in theory so uh, you know I think that that is sort of the play here I mean if a building like this was being built in Chicago you would probably have you know apartments starting at 1200 square feet and going up from there uh, you know it would be a very fine building and in Toronto typically when you see buildings like this even in Yorkville which is an affluent neighborhood uh, very small units and I've been tracking the uh, developments throughout the Yorkville area and most of the buildings have small units in fact the 50 scholar building uh, which was proposed to have units starting at about 1,300 square feet have knocked them down to, in some cases, the smallest units being under 700 square feet. And they were saying this would be the most exclusive development in Canada. So mm. uh, again, well, I think we're just totally getting off topic, oh, but totally, I, I find yeah. right, right, right. I mean, we should do a, a podcast on residential real estate at some <laughs> no point. Way. I don't know. <laughs> went back to the retail bend. JLL went and had a node study that came out for the neighborhood, and it was very positive on the direction that retail was going to be headed for the areas, which is great. But I was just wondering if there was any kind of consideration for construction projects on the horizon that may be impacting that forecast. Because, well, I realize that this is just a proposal, so you can't really go in and make and shape a forecast based on that. But still, like it's a big open pile driving construction zone right next to a flagship Harry Rosen store. That, that's that got to have an impact on the sales funnel, much less the large luxury tenants that are across the street. You know, I think so. I mean, I'll be honest with that. I know right now Holt Renfrew is, you know, being ripped apart. Uh, you know, the facade is under construction. Again, we're recording this in November to be done in the spring of 2020. Uh, you know, it's disruptive to the sidewalk. It makes it narrow. It makes it awkward. Sometimes there's noise uh, across the street where, uh, you know, Italy is going at the Manulife Center. You know, that was a major construction zone for a while. They're just kind of finishing it off now. But uh, all of the construction in the neighborhood, I think, has turned some people away. It's just, you know, it's been unsightly. It's been noisy. It's been hard to walk around. It's just not, you know, pleasant. I mean, when Bloor Yorkville is done, whenever that will be, it will be great. But um, one thing I was thinking about is, you know, you've got Holt Renfrew at 50 Bloor Street West, which is between Bay Street and Young Street. Uh, you know, that is a clustering of brands that 
wealthy people will gravitate to. But then you have a similar and sometimes identical clustering, uh, you know, a few hundred feet away to the west on the Mink Mile, as we've kind of coined it, uh, on Blur Street. And uh, again, that's another clustering of brands. So, you know, if someone's going to be walking along the north side of Bloor Street uh, to, say, visit, you know, Louis Vuitton or Hermes or, you know, Burberry, there's, you know, Tiffany, there's a few stores on the north side of the street. Uh, you know, in theory, they'd be walking through this construction site at 80 Bloor Street West. Uh, you know, the Harry Rosen store, I mean, it's already had some issues in terms of, you know, we've lost parking and the neighborhood has been under construction, sales are down. Uh, I mean, it's a good thing they got probably a few million dollars for the air rights over the building because it's going to compensate for what could be lost sales. Mm, but at yeah. the same time, there's a lot, you know, Harry Rosen has a lot of very loyal clients and whatnot mm-hmm. that uh, yeah. will shop there. But there's also many other Harry Rosen stores in the city of Toronto. I haven't done a count, but it's like, it's almost a dozen, I think. Mm, yeah. Well, and at the end of the day, if this is a Obviously, Harry Rosen is going to be the most impacted with the Cirque du Soleil construction about to happen above it. But the other thing I just was noticing, too, is like they are literally going to demolish the building next to it. And there's tenants in it right now. So what's going to happen with those retailers and tenants that are in there to that need to be displaced? Good question. I mean, Banana Republic is one of the tenants. Uh, I mean, uh, I kind of honestly had assumed that they would be leaving Blur Street at some point anyways. So... You know, I think this is a convenient exit. And keep in mind, by the way, we don't know the timeline of this project. It has to be approved, and then they're going to have to do pre-sales of the condominiums. And it's going to be probably, a, you know, at least a couple of years before they break ground. So uh, my optometrist is there, and they're just doing a major renovation. Uh, I'll do a shout-out to them separately at one point. But, uh, you know, like they're doing a major renovation to their yeah. space. They're expanding it. They're creating an eye-moistening spa. I'm not, but, I'm not joking. What? And, oh. uh, <laughs> um, you know, doing this in a building that's going to be demolished. Mm. Uh, the other tenants, Roots. And oh, yeah. uh, I don't know if it's technically Roots is like global flagship store because they're Toronto-based. But, oh, yeah. uh, you know, they're going to have to find another space on Bloor Street again because Roots years ago used to be where the whole Rent for Men store is at uh, 100 Bloor Street, which is, yeah. uh, you know, the same building that Hermes is in mm-hmm. and Barry's Boot Camp is in the back. Xenia yes, is yeah, there. Oh, yeah. I live upstairs. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, I, I'm honestly not looking forward to this project in oh. terms of the noise because uh, it's, oh. it, you know, I'll probably move to be honest oh. if... Uh, when the construction starts. I'm sorry to hear that. And I guess you're not necessarily going to need the eye moisturizing spa that's being demolished with the tears of pain from the construction. And the dust. <laughs> and the dust, yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, when I was reading this article, I didn't necessarily see a heavy retail component to it, but it is the iconic Harry Rosen flagship on Blur in Toronto. So, And plus the building being cuddled by the new development in all the renderings just looked amazing too. Yeah, right? it'll add some retail space eventually. I don't know. I mean, I speculated there's an opportunity for luxury brands to move in because, you know, David's Footwear unfortunately no longer exists as a retailer. So, uh, you know, that corner space is for lease right now. Sapple says that uh, f- uh, for lease. And at some point, this new retail space at this 80 Bloor project will come online. And I mean, I figured there could be an opportunity maybe for luxury brands only because it would be kind of connecting the high end part of the Mink Mile with the retail that we're seeing over where Holt Renfrew is. And then, you know, I think we're going to see increased foot traffic with Eataly. I mean, Eataly is not a luxury place in terms of, you know, it's, it's accessible. It's accessible, I should say, to many people. It's not just for, you know, extremely wealthy people. So, uh, you know, I think it's going to create a really 
great you know vibe to the neighborhood and other things are coming too. a lot of redevelopments behind Holt Renfrew um, you know Apple is going to be opening a large flagship store at the corner of Young and Bloor and uh, other things are happening. Oh, whoa, whoa wait a minute Apple's going in there? Yeah it's reported I'm not confirming mm-hmm. anything but it has been very well reported in many publications and there have been building applications and other stuff that have pointed to the fact that there may very well be an Apple store opening at Young and Bloor so awesome. uh, I, and again you know hopefully I stick around in this neighborhood because uh, that would be great for me because you know Apple has a very small store at the CF Toronto Eaton Center right now it's under 5,000 square feet but they're opening a bigger one there too they're just they're building it downstairs right below the current one and now a quick message from our episode sponsor Prisma Construction they're a leading retail construction specialist doing development rollouts management project management plus coordination and follow-up retail insider recently featured prisma in an article discussing the company's expansion internationally including its first project in china visit them at prismaconstruction.com and our second most read article is a canadian brand called true outliers now when you go to their instagram account they are self-described as unapologetically canadian disrupting the coat industry one parka at a time so you can obviously assume they are an outerwear company, but they're selling mink line jackets and they're based out of Toronto. But Craig, when I was going through their website and taking a look at their social media channels, it looks like they have quite a bit of a celebrity following behind it. And you've met the people behind the brand. So what did you think about the launch and the brand itself? Yeah, it's really, I find this one really interesting. I met up with Mo- Moses Mandelbaum a few weeks ago and uh, he's 26 year old uh, entrepreneur, very charismatic, really nice guy. Uh, had a really great visit. His uh, family owns Gertex, which is a um, manufacturing uh, company that distributes all kinds of different products from hosiery on upwards. Uh, but yeah, he founded this brand. I thought it was really, really interesting because uh, uh, the advertising, um, you know, the marketing imagery is really, it's quite edgy. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. you know, you've got uh, you know, very attractive women not wearing much except for the parka same thing you, you get a shirtless guy with abs who's you know wearing this thing uh, they've done photo shoots in florida where you know it's there's quite a contrast between palm trees and someone wearing a, a yeah, parka yeah. that parka you know, with mink on yeah, it yeah and you know it, it's interesting because you know we, we've talked about wuxley movement which is very much uh, an anti-animal product brand you know they're, they're not using down feathers they're not using fur in their colors and and uh, true outliers is pretty much the opposite in terms of they are using mink now these it is sort ethically sourced i should say uh i'm not allowed to say where actually unfortunately but i can tell you it's it's an interesting story where it's coming from and they use fox fur for the color i had mm. to, i had to clarify that uh, okay and then they use down for the um uh, Parka shell part basically so uh, basically you're going to have a combination of a down shell and mink on the inside which uh, should be very warm uh, mm. I'll find out soon <laughs> excellent well and I know that the fur is listed as ethically sourced and that there is a very real discussion that's going on whether fur is acceptable or not and that's beyond the scope of what I think we should talk about today but what I would like to kind of focus on is Canada seems to be generating a lot of outer brands that are going to market. So you have Canada Goose, you have Macage, you have a variety of others. But like, what's your thought on the thought leadership or even just outerwear leadership that our designers are bringing to the marketplace for Canada? Yeah, I mean, Canada's not really known to be a fashion country. I mean, any designers that we've had that have been quite successful have ended up leaving the country for the most part to uh you know like i don't know dan and dean from d squared um you know erdem uh brand erdem you know from montreal but now is i think he's working in the uk uh you know a lot of them have, have had to move but we've we have leaders out there in the outerwear uh uh, sphere who are Canadian and I guess that kind of makes sense because 
Canada's cold as it snows in Toronto right now. And <laughs> uh, a little bit anyways. But, you know, you've got Canada Goose, you've got Moose Knuckles, you've got, uh, and it's from Montreal, but it's Macage, you know, uh, beautiful, you know, outerwear that they make. They make fashion as well, of course. But, uh, and then you've got Wuxley, which, uh, you know, it's different in that uh, they're not using, you know, animal products, but really great looking jackets and supposedly very warm as well. So, uh, you know, Canada really is a leader in this area, which is exciting. So, you know, seeing true outliers, uh, you know, coming to the forefront, I mean, they have a unique, different value proposition, and the way that the marketing is being done is very, very contemporary. You know, he's using influencers. Um, he's using, you know, kind of a sex appeal. He's uh, creating, you know, a really interesting, you know, image. It's, it's quite dynamic. It's fun. It's cool. And, uh, you know, with social media, I mean, I, I just came back from a, a talk that High Snobiety, I probably didn't pronounce that right, and Contraband put on uh, talking about the future of luxury fashion. And, you know, it's very much about, you know, hype, at least to a degree. Uh, it's about social media. It's about, you know, influencing people. It's, it's getting into the psyche of the consumer. And True Outliers could be a pretty big brand at some point. I mean, it's, it's got the manufacturing capabilities and it's also got interesting marketing. So, you know, provided that people are not turned off by the fact that fur, uh, real fur is being used uh, in this product. And, you know, I know people have differing opinions on that. Uh, uh, you know, that this brand could be quite successful. Well, it's interesting because when I take a look at the marketing, it's very trendy and edgy, which is great for a brand, especially if you're launching this year. But like they also have celebrities that are in the social media for the account as well. So Jamie Foxx is in there, um, Michael B. Jordan, as well as Ariana Singh. So like it is a beautiful product. But at the end of the day, like are these people be also being brought in because they are influencers or are th- did they find the brand and love it? Or did they actually know him before? That's actually a good question. I didn't ask Moses if he knew them beforehand. But I mean, just given his great personality, I'm sure he charmed them if oh, <laughs> he didn't already yeah. know them. So like again really nice and I say this genuinely I think he's a really nice guy um, you know and very friendly and you know you know, I, I think that these celebrities were supplied or given these jackets okay. so you know that's always a good thing that the yeah price that you know you would pay at retail would be $1,800 for one of these so which uh, to be honest there, yeah. is no I mean if you think about you know like they're fully mink lined in mink uh, inside and have a fox for collar um, I honestly would think the price point like that would be higher I mean my mom's mink coat I mean I don't know how much that thing costs but it, you know a lot more than $1,800 like I think we're looking yeah. at least 10 times that amount <laughs> yeah, so. yeah, that's fair and and on the other end of the spectrum I wanted to also bring up a third article that we wanted to highlight There's an Alberta entrepreneur that is running a company called W100, and it's basically uh, trying to create Canadian fashions made out of wool, but doing it as ethically as possible, meaning it's basically Canadian wool, Canadian mill, Canadian produce, and dyed by hand. So it's an interesting slow fashion concept, as opposed to a lot of our fast fashion H&M kind of stuff that is basically made who knows where and it's not necessarily high quality um so at the end of the day uh, i think there's a little bit of a story that you have on how you ran into this entrepreneur and i was just wanting to know about it as well as a little bit about the brand yeah yeah um w100 is a really interesting brand and uh, a quick little backstory on how i met deborah uh, i was uh, on a radio show where we had callers who were calling in and uh I think it was actually her husband who called in, uh, who was talking. Yeah, but um, you know, we, we connected after that on, on Twitter, funny enough. I, I said, can we talk and do something a Retail Insider? Because um, the conversation that we were having on that show was about Forever 21, which is fast fashion. And, you know, fast fashion 
is fast as per the name. It's it's usually not the highest quality item. It's mass produced. Uh, it isn't meant to be probably worn a whole lot. Uh, uh, you know, it may follow fashion trends that uh, you know are coming quite quickly, and you know it's it's mass produced everywhere. And uh, you know, people now are starting to question. You know, where are my clothes made? Uh, who are they made by? Are these people being treated okay? Are they being paid well? Um, you know, is this polluting the environment? So. Uh, W100, you know, is really the opposite. Uh, it's a brand which, you know, it's handmade products, like you point out, the 100 mile, uh, like basically everything that goes into this product, she's in Red Deer, Alberta. Um, all the suppliers ideally will be within 100 miles of the production facility in Red Deer, Alberta. So, you know, they've got wool from a nearby um, sheep farm, I guess is a what herd. you call herd. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's a, obviously, I'm not in the, from the farmer's <laughs> world of farming Fair or enough. agriculture, I guess is maybe the, the pr- correct word. I think animals are agriculture. Again, I, I'm, yeah, I'm a city yeah. guy now. Yeah. But, uh, you know, the hand dyeing of this stuff here. I mean, when you buy something from W100, I mean, you know that the person who made it was treated well. You know that the product, you know, came ethically sourced and uh, uh, you know you're, you're getting a special piece and I got it ex- I got excited about this because you know I think that you know in, in an age where you can just buy a pair of pants almost anywhere I think we're oversaturated with retail in certain categories if if a brand can come out and say that you know something has meaning like if you're connecting with your buyer by you know showing that some you know people are making a difference by buying this they're actually doing something that's not bad for the environment i think that that actually i think there's actually a market for that right now uh, in canada and globally so brands like this could be yeah. successful but you know scaling it uh, could be another issue well and there is some tangible benefit to knowing that there's someone that is uh, going in, finding the wool, finding like how to mill it, how to produce it and making it by hand and putting it together high and dyeing it so but on the other side of the fence too like it's great that you're going down the route of being ethical but um i did have some wonders and questions around like how could someone scale something uh to a a larger platform to you know make it more of a successful business because for me i'm coming up with a blank unless you start going overseas and starting to outsource it so what's your thought craig on how to take something that's a great idea very ethical uh, Mm -hmm. a lot of tangible value and then trying to scale it out and share that out to more people in the world not only just to make money but also to be yeah that's a really good question because in terms of sustainable growth which i guess would speak to scalability as well. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, I know you're not going to see every Walmart store throughout the world having this product. I mean, the, you're first of all, you know, you need the supply chain. You you need exactly. to uh, have you know enough of a herd. I guess is the term we're going to use of sheep to you know for yeah. the wool, for example. Uh, then the labor. I mean, you know, who's doing the hand dyeing? I mean, at some point, uh, you know, she may be able to expand the business by having you know multiple employees who are you know doing some of these tasks and then you know sort of scale it from there but you know you're again you're not going to see this brand in every single walmart store in the world because i just don't think that the production capabilities would be nearly large enough but that's probably not the goal with this brand in the first place i think that this brand is here to make a difference and you know it's it's for people to make a living and to you know have a passion for what they're doing and uh, you know, I'm sure they're having fun doing it as well. And, uh, you know, that's all fine and well. But and not all businesses need to be, you know, mass producers. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. there is something to be said for quality and exclusivity out there. And by exclusivity, I don't mean something that's really, really expensive. I just mean that it's, you know, something that might be you know, more difficult to find or you know, may not be quite as readily available just because it's not being mass produced. So, 
Um, I'm tempted to buy a couple of pieces. I actually have to go online and have a, have a look. But because yeah. I don't think the hundred mile rule applies to you know that you can buy shipping it to Toronto. <laughs> exactly. Yes. Either that, or when I go back to Alberta next spring or whatever, I'll uh, be able to check yeah. it out then. Maybe. Fair. Well, and it's just a, a very different article as opposed to some of the mass-produced or luxury uh, topics that we typically go through. So thanks for kind of going through that with me. But is there any news from around the web or e-news that you wanted to bring up? Yeah, something really caught my attention this week. Um, so there was a news report in the CBC about Amazon, the Canadian website specifically, sending Canadians expired food. Oh, my God. Really? Oh, yeah, including baby formula and oh. other products. So, I, you know, this really made me think for a minute because Amazon has been grabbing market share from all kinds of retailers in all categories at this point, be it, you know, fashion, food, books, you know, pretty much everything now. And uh, part of food retail is trust. You know, yeah. if, if you're getting consumers in there, you know, you... To build a, a loyal clientele, you need to have a level of trust. And if Amazon, you know, is sending out expired product, now they're saying that there were some mistakes, there were some issues with, you know, I don't know, logistics and with whatever other processes they have going on there that, uh, you know, they're, they're saying that this is a boo-boo, but, you know, apparently there are quite a few comments online and, you know, CBC did inter interview some people who had purchased these expired items. And, I mean, I'm not going to be going out right now and probably buying groceries on Amazon. Uh, I'm still one of those people who goes and walks to the grocery store and gets my groceries. So I've got five of them really close to me, including Italy. Yeah. So, you yeah. know, <laughs> um, you know, I, I, and it's a little bit, you know, it's exercise, I get out a little bit in the city and get to check things out. And, you know, I, I enjoy doing it, but at some point as I get busier, I'm probably going to order groceries online, but you know, an Amazon probably would have been a no brainer for me, uh, but I, yeah. I, that lack of trust that I might have now, and I'm sure many other people would agree with that, uh, that could actually really, you know, that one news story could actually, you know, put a dent in Amazon sales in terms of groceries. Mm -hmm. So I, I found that really fascinating if you think psychologically, because with food, yeah. I mean, we're putting it in our bodies. We don't want, you know, for the most part, terrible things. Well, and like, I mean, I don't have anything against Amazon, even though in our last podcast, I didn't necessarily talk favorably about the Amazon business idea, but still, like, I mean, with this one, this mistake, like, I mean, sure, charts were held upside down, something went wrong, but um, it's baby food. That's right. And I mean, this is a challenging time because the grocery industry in Canada is hyper competitive. We've got, you know, Amazon trying to, you know, expand groceries. We've talked about Costco. I mean, Costco, which has a really unique business model. I think we're gonna have to talk about this more. Actually, uh, a very nice person emailed me and was explaining how Costco's vendor system works because I was not totally familiar. So, um, you know, but I won't go into that right now, other than to say that, you know, Costco's expanding grocery offerings through its vendors. You know, Walmart, for sure, you know, expanding groceries like crazy. I mean, you know, a lot of the super centers and other stores are expanding the grocery offerings. I've seen this as I've traveled. Shoppers Drug Mart got into the grocery game, you know, after the Loblaw, after Loblaw acquired them, I should say, um, we're seeing other grocers coming in. We reported on Sun Given Foods out of China. You know, they've made their international expansion into Canada. They're going to open, I think, three stores in Vancouver over the next few months. Uh, and then at some point, Aldi and Lidl out of, you know, Germany may come into Canada. I mean, Aldi's been in the States since the late 1970s. Uh, um, you know, even Galen Weston from Loblaws has said, oh, you know, we expect, you know, Aldi to come into Canada at some point. So, um, you know, not everyone's probably going to survive in the long run in terms of you know the grocery industry. I don't, I don't want to predict who's going to fall, but you know, it's always open to speculation, right? Yeah, 
Yeah, yeah. I think that's a wrap for the podcast, Craig. So thank you for going through the popular content that our readers really enjoyed over the last week. Uh, We wanted to remind everybody that we do have an email newsletter that goes out every morning and it contains links to all of our Retail Insider content that just uh, came out over the last little bit. Uh, The most popular is, of course, the Canadian news from around the web, which is a curation of all the previous uh, 24 hours worth of Canadian news of retail nature. Uh, But it also has a link to all the different news articles that we published ourselves that is exclusive to Retail Insider. So if you go to retail-insider.com, you can find uh, the subscribe area so that you can start getting that email in your inbox every morning. But thanks again for listening to this podcast. Please do subscribe and be notified when new episodes of this podcast are published. But also please do rate us five stars because it does boost our discoverability in conjunction with subscribing people. So thanks again, everyone, for listening. And Craig, thanks for joining me to chat about the articles too. Thank you so much, everyone. Take care.